0: Welcome to the Moneyball Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Glorickian. This series is all about the data-driven transformation of the healthcare and life sciences landscape. Each episode, we dive deep through one-on-one interviews with leaders in the new cost-conscious, value-based healthcare economy. We look at the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for the years to come. I'd like to welcome our next guest, uh, Dr. Jason Bonn, who's the co-founder and chief medical officer of Prognos. Uh, he's a family physician and serves as chief medical officer of Prognos. He's regarded as a national expert uh, in the applications of technology and medicine, a, a topic on which he speaks regularly at institutions and conferences such as Health 2.0, M Health eHealth Collaborative and Health Data Palooza. He's also done extensive strategy consulting with different companies, including pharmaceutical companies uh, and others. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Jason. Uh, pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you. So tell me a little bit about um, Prognos, um, maybe a little bit about its history and, and what you guys are really doing.
1: Sure. So we have a, a, an incredibly ambitious vision. Which is to eradicate disease, uh, and you might look at that and say, "All right, well, that seems pretty incredible. How are you going to get there?" Uh, and that is, you know, it's sort of like our twenty-year vision out, um, and we've we've got a, a a mission, which is to you know find and predict disease even earlier uh, than it is today. So when we started the company, probably seven or eight years ago, uh, you know, it was it was how, we were trying to figure out how could we take uh, data that was available in the system and use it for improving the lives of patients uh, so we looked at different data sets that were out there we looked at you know claims data and prescription data and what we really knew and what i really knew from my years of practice was that sitting there in my office seeing you know 30 patients a day um, and ordering lots of blood tests on them and lab tests on them and then going back and seeing, you know, going back to, my, back to my, my desk and sitting there and looking at all of the test results that had been ordered from the prior days, I would sit there and I would make more relevant clinical decisions based on the lab test results that I was seeing than I did during the whole day of seeing patients. Uh, so we knew that you know, this concept of lab data was really important. Uh, and in fact, there's some studies out there that show that more than 70% of all clinical decisions are based on uh, lab test results. And it's even more in areas like oncology and rare disease, uh, where it can be up to 100%. So we, we figured that we would start to work with lab data. Uh, and that was not easy because the lab system is fragmented. Uh, there are something like five or 6,000 labs in the United States alone. Um, but many of them, uh, but, but there's a, you know, the, the top probably 1,000 handle most of the lab testing in the U.S. aside from acute care settings. And so we started partnering with labs like uh, LabCorp and Quest and working with them and helping them with their data, which was sort of the second problem is once you can start to aggregate all of that data, you have to clean and standardize all of that data. Clinical data is not easy to work with. Uh, it typically has a lot of uh, unstructured uh, aspects to it, so we spent a lot of time just figuring out how to collect it and organize it uh, more than anything else. Um, once we were able to to do that, we saw that there's a tremendous amount of value in it, both in the pharmaceutical space and in the payer space, uh, where we offer products today. So while we aggregate and collect all of this data and standardize it and clean it, we actually turn it into products, and those products are what service our our end clients. And uh, and the idea was that you know early on we were able to find patients that had particular diseases we were pretty good at doing that Uh, and then you know the sort of the next phase that we moved into was to uh, predict which patients were going to develop x y or z Uh, It could be which patients were going to fail a particular therapy uh, predict which patients were going to go on to a particular therapy uh, which patients were needed to be tested more regularly or didn't need to be tested or were missing tests in order to clinch a diagnosis um, so as we move into the prediction phase, which has been over the last couple of years, where we've uh, where we've really beefed up our uh, our uh, computational expertise and AI uh, and engineering, uh, we've kind of understood more about how to predict these events. Uh, and then the idea is, once you can predict something, uh, you have to figure out what are the right points to intervene. And once you can intervene before something happens. Then you've you know, potentially you move towards the potential of eradicating that that disease, so that's sort of how we, we have our vision and how we've been moving towards it for the last couple of years.
0: What have been some of the challenges that um, you've faced along the way to implement or make this a reality
1: yeah there's a, there's a lot of challenges out there in this space. Um, one I talked about was the fragmentation of the data the, the data set itself. Um, Two was obviously organizing and, and making that data fit for purpose. Um, but there are a lot of other things that, that were challenges, right? So in the, in the sort of the standard healthcare data uh, world, there are claims data and prescription data. And both of those are, are fairly commoditized. Uh, there are a couple of you know, players who have organized and, and, and brought all of that data together. So it was pretty well known, but you know, clinical data is different and you know, one of the things that we faced was it was new Uh, and just working with labs was new and labs were, you know, it wasn't their business to be in data, their business is running tests. And so anything new is, you know, foreign and and, guilty until proven innocent. Um, so we had a lot of work to do with just the labs in order to, uh, to c- get them comfortable with the fact that we had all the safeguards in place for managing data, all the, you know, that we were compliant with HIPAA and that, um, you know, that, that they weren't going at risk by providing all this, and that we were providing them something of value uh, with what we were doing. So that was a, a big hurdle is just in accessing uh, this data. And that, that took a long time uh, just to get there. And then the other side of it is proving the value, right? So everybody's used to using something uh, on the on the on the final, you know, on the on the far end of things, right? Pharmaceutical companies are used to using claims and prescriptions, uh, and so are payers. So convincing them that lab data and this clinical data was good enough or better than what they were currently using, either to augment what they were currently using or replace it altogether. Um, so that was uh, another challenge. Anytime you're new to the market with something, it's it's always a challenge. So that's that's probably been the biggest. So, where have you
0: seen something that you weren't expecting, and where do you think where do you see this having the biggest impacts?
1: Sure. So uh, so one of the one of the things that we didn't expect uh, was in the diversity of care that patients uh, are, are that patients receive. Um, You know, there are clinical guidelines that are published and doctors are supposed to follow clinical guidelines and patients are supposed to present themselves all the time when they're supposed to so that they can, the doctors can follow the clinical guidelines. Um, But you know, the real world is different and doctors practice differently and patients aren't always as accessible as you would hope them to be and even when they have major illnesses, they don't present themselves as often as they should for care. So one of the things that we looked at, one of the diseases that we looked at was CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia, um, which is a type of blood cancer. And what we found was that uh, it, this is actually a great disease for for lab testing because there's been a, a sort of a, a, a new you know a test that's been around for a little while that's, that looks at a molecular marker and you're able to track the course of the disease over time in the blood, which is you know, that's like the the, the holy grail for, for cancer. Um, and so basically, there's this blood test. And once you use it to diagnose the disease, uh, and then you use it to track the course of the disease. And so you're supposed to continue to test, uh, you know, once a quarter until the person is in remission. Uh, so that's four tests a year. And Therapy is changed based on the results of the test. If you're driving the test, you know, you're driving the, the presence of the mutation down, then you can, you know, you, you can stay on your therapy. If it's changing, then it changes. Uh, and, uh, and so what we found was that, number one, patients on average were being tested like 1.5 times per year instead of four times per year. Uh, and that those patients who were tested more frequently were having better outcomes. Uh, and so what we were able to, we were actually did the work with uh, uh, the professor who came up with the help write the guidelines. And he was just as shocked as we were that this testing frequency was so low. And what we kind of found was that look, if you, tr- if you test people more, then there are better outcomes and you drive them more towards remission. Uh, And I think that was sort of a shocking thing to find, not that it occurs, but that it occurred at such a high rate and with such a discrepancy from the clinical guidelines. Uh, And you could make certainly many arguments on that. You could say that you should be uh, educating providers about the importance of testing uh, and not under testing, but making sure you're doing the appropriate amounts of testing. You could educate patients with the disease on the importance of going to your providers and getting tested regularly. Uh, you could give heads up to payers on patients who aren't getting tested as frequently as they should and getting them higher, more engaged with the patients so that the outcomes are better and the costs are lower. And you could work with pharmaceutical companies on educating providers, educating patients, and figuring out how to even to, uh, figure out how to pay for some of this testing, um, which you know wasn't occurring. You'd almost want it all to happen. You do want it all to happen. It's you know ideally that's what would happen. but all we did was find all the correlations and then pass out the information to folks and uh, and hope that uh, hope that they, they can power some of their resources
0: towards it. So when you guys are looking at from the the data sciences side, uh, you know I'm sure that in the beginning it was much more simple analytics. you know actually probably the majority of your time was cleaning and and organizing just to get it useful but but now it's now that it's sort of in a better state let's say or in a much more usable state what are the challenges around you know hiring the right people you know when do you decide what sort of data analytics do you use how complicated is it you know um, do, do you settle on a platform are you constantly evolving to keep up with the this constant set of change
1: yeah so so it, it you know there are a number of different questions in there one is just finding the right talent um, that is not easy uh, it does make it easier that we have a very large unique and interesting data set uh, and it makes it very interesting that we are in the healthcare space so the people that we tend to find are those who want a new challenge with lots of lo- with lots of data and want to make a meaningful contribution to the world uh, so we, you know, we have uh, we have recruited people out of the the medical space, uh, and usually those data scientists are the ones who were recruited by a hospital system or by uh, a company that had great science but no data, and so they were kind of tired of not really doing anything and just you know, kind of theorizing all the time. Uh, And then we recruited folks out of uh, industries like ad tech, where their mantra was, you know, the right ad to the right person at the right time, where we were saying things like the right drug to the right person at the right time. Um, And that's very enticing to people. So, uh, you know, we we made a hire a couple years ago uh, and found our chief data scientist who came out of the ad tech space. And he's been great. Uh, He's a a mathematician, a pure scientist, and and loves the theory, and, and, you know, and it keeps us all on our toes and pushes us to, you know, pushes us to great new things. He's also recruited an amazing top-tier group of AI data scientists that uh, that help us do what we do. Um, And, you know, they are these... uh, the way they work is it's almost like they're playing with toys uh, and there's a new shiny one and and they go and grab it and that's great because that's the way you want to approach this space Um, you know something something changes every week there's a new platform that comes out every week or month and it may actually be better than the one you used before Uh, you know I think uh, actually this week uh, we're presenting alongside Amazon at, uh, at the uh, JupyterCon for being one of the biggest utilizers in the healthcare space of SageMaker, uh, which is their new platform that's uh, AI based that's kind of going up against uh, Google and, and uh, Microsoft and others. Um, so, you know, we're experimenting with new technologies all the time. And, you know, AI technology is really a commodity at this point. Uh, you can as long as you have the data and you have it formatted in a way that it can be absorbed into a system, uh, then you can use just about any application out there uh, and and oftentimes multiple applications in order to get the right answer
0: so, so you know we were we were happened to be chatting on the way up here, and you mentioned one of the people that's benefiting from the data that you 're giving them and how they are shifting from Sort of looking at the world from an actuarial perspective to actually predicting. Can you walk us? Can you walk the pe- You know, someone through that? How that evolved over time? Sure. So, so we know that
1: with clinical data, especially lab data, uh, you can infer a tremendous amount of information about an individual: uh, how sick they are, what comorbid conditions they have, uh, whether they have a disease or not, but also where they are in their disease state. Uh, So from a payer's perspective, someone with diabetes is interesting, but someone with diabetes that's poorly controlled, who also has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, is much more interesting from a number of different perspectives. One, because they're more likely to get sicker, and two, because in the world of insurance, especially government, uh, you know, either Medicare Advantage or the ACA population or Medicaid, the payer actually gets reimbursed more to care for that individual. So one of the, the products that we have out there uh, is both a sort of a, a identification and predictive uh, product for uh, payers. And what we do is we help them identify in a population of patients, either that is existing for them or a new population that's coming in for them, where their risk is. Uh, and which patients are going to get sicker over the next 12 months and which ones are going to cost them more money or have more disease burden. And they're using that for two things. One is to direct resources towards those patients so that they can either uh, impact their cost before it gets out of control uh, and improve their health, and second, in the reimbursement um, from, from the government because the more complex a patient is and the sooner you know about that complexity, the more money you can recover in order to take care of that patient. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one. And, and then the other is really around where you know, predicting, predicting costs and traditional method is uh, in actuarial tables, right? Looking at the demographic slopes of an individual, uh, where they live, what their age range is, what uh, what their what their occupation is, sometimes um, zip codes and other things, and then using that and sort of the the law of large numbers and and predicting what sort of bucket of costs that they'll fall into over the coming 12 months. And what we've discovered is that if you take uh, lab tests and costs and look at that retrospectively. Uh, and build and let the machine sort of go at that, uh, go at that uh, that matrix of data. You can then, based on lab data alone, you can predict the future 12 months of cost or disease burden that's coming down from from that patient population. Uh, and then, what would you do with that? Well, you could do anything from directing resources towards it to to correctly. Uh, predicting your cost for that group of of that population of patients and and uh, pleasing your investors as well as your your bottom line so
0: where do you see this capability going in the future do you add other data sources to it that really change the paradigm like instead of Just looking at lab tests you take on wearable data so you monitor people in between where do you see the future going and what you guys have have built and and where would you like to see it be
1: yeah that that's a great question I mean I think the holy grail is as much data on as many people as you can get Um, health is so multifactorial there are so many permutations of why a person goes down a particular path that Uh, I think unless you have millions and millions of patients with millions of data points, we're really not going to understand what and why. Um, Even the predictions that we're making now are, are inaccurate because of that. We're more accurate than the old ways, but we're still inaccurate because of all the different things that can go into a person's health. Um, And to your point, I think adding more data sets is a great way of improving that, right? There is wearable data. There's that sort of whole healthcare data layer of information that's collected on patients, either through passive or active sensors. Um, The challenge with that is they're not mainstream yet. I mean, the people who are using Fitbits are the ones who probably don't need it as much. They're generally healthy and walking and, and other things. So it'll be great when, you know you know, Apple kinda gets a, a critical mass of of users using their systems. More people are using Fitbits and, and so on and so forth. But um so that's a, a layer I think socio like the spending behaviors of people is really impressive. I mean you know, location information at any given time. Uh, you know, if you could imagine you see someone hop from McDonald's to McDonald's uh, on a day-to-day basis and then correlate that with the amount of money they're spending there and then with their lab test results and their claims history, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful. Um, and then I think adding in genetics data to that, uh, once we sort of know what to do with full genome sequencing, uh, is a really powerful addition to the set. Uh, so, you know, continuing to add data and add data and uh, and ideally the <laughs> the cost of comp- computing all of that continues to drop so that it doesn't become, you know, prohibitive, um, because that is right now even still so sort of an issue, it, it was just sort of the cost of crunching all this data. Um, and then where does it go? I think ultimately it goes to the individual. Uh, I, I believe that you know, strongly that, that healthcare care reform in the last 10 years has been about empowering individuals, educating them, driving costs down, improve, improving care and improving access. Um, but I do believe that empowering people with the information will help drive change. Uh, and we do that now through pharma and payers. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, you drive it to providers and give them the information that they need and ultimately down to patients and give them the information in a format they can consume and, uh, and with recommendations that make sense. And I think that's when you really start to drive like the disease curve and the cost curve down.
0: So what do you see as the next set of hurdles, either for you guys or for companies like you to sort of move the needle on the what you guys are trying to do.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the sort of the four letter word in the, in the industry is interoperability. Uh, there is a lot of data available on a lot of people uh, out there from a healthcare standpoint. Unfortunately, it's in a lot of silos. Uh, and those silos are there, uh, not just from a technical standpoint, uh, but they're there from a process standpoint and, and just a business standpoint. Uh, if you can imagine if you're an electronic health record company uh, who m- makes your money uh, on, on on you know, your subscriptions to your EHR and the server that sits in the doctor's office and the doctor says, you know, hey, I want to port my data out of this to somewhere else. W- what's my incentive to do that as an EHR? I'm just going to lose that doctor as a client because they're going to go to a, the next EHR that's just as easy. So you know, and it's certainly not like a judgment on these folks, these are all businesses, but there's no incentive to share data. Um, So the government's been working on that for years and has really yet been able to, as of yet, been able to incentivize all this or create a standard that the industry can use. So while the holy grail is collecting all of the data on all of the people, um, I still see we're a long way off from that. So we're just kind of attacking it in a piecemeal way.
0: So that, that brings, begs a question of like um, Apple making EHR portable on its platform. It's not everything in the record, but is that a bridge? Are they disrupting the interoperability of these systems and sort of almost usurping the players not wanting to play?
1: Yeah, I hope so. Uh, now they're still using the standard, which is called Fire, uh, and so all the EHRs need to play nicely with Fire, which they may or may not. Um, and in all honesty, the the most valuable piece of information, the most immediately valuable piece of information coming out of the EHR is biometrics. It's like blood pressure, height, weight, and some basic social information. Um, so that that I think. The Apple software will be able to pull relatively straightforward. Uh, You'll still have some issues with it, but it's a lot easier than, say, trying to pull out a a note and deciding whether MI meant Michigan or myocardial infarction. Um, So there's a lot of work that has to go into that. Uh, But I think there's some immediate wins that can come out of of Apple's play here um, and make some data available to the system, which has not really been at scale available.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the, I th- I think the next version is that the uh, user will be able to share that data with an app that might that they could want to share with. Yeah. So, if Prognos had an app available that could interact, that that would be another way to have a data ingestion engine with a standardized set of data.
1: Yeah, and I, I presume that uh, that Apple will probably allow anonymized versions of that data to, uh, that consumers will be able to cons- consent to anonymized versions of their data to go out um, without someone having an app that will be available. And I think that's actually, I mean, that's how we function. Uh, our registry, which is, you know, 18 billion records on 180 million patients, is actually all de-identified, um, but that's our training set. And that's where we build all of our algorithms from and then once you have an algorithm built you know it's all these little fragmented pieces of patient journeys once you have a, a person come in as an individual you then map them to what alg- whatever point along the journey that they are and then you can give them their individualized uh, ideas so that that is right so if if apple would make or if anyone makes de-identified data available more broadly then you can use that to create those algorithms and then create the app that an individual would then get mapped against and it would tell them what, what their health is or what you know, predict what their future looks like.
0: So it sounds like a very promising future. I know the majority of your clients are, are you know, insurers and uh, pharmaceutical companies, but it sounds like you guys are slowly moving towards you know, eventually getting to the patient.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's, I do believe that that's where the biggest impact will be made. Um, And, and interacting with patients is very different than interacting with pharma or healthcare systems. You have to have a, a a very tailored approach to that. And, you know, as as a physician, I (laughs) definitely know how to work with patients and how to get them to do what you're trying to get them to do in order to improve their health. Um, But it's tough. I mean, there are entire companies out there that are focused solely on how do you get a patient to engage with their own health. And that's not an area of expertise for us, but we will certainly piggyback on that and power whatever uh, we can to help them figure out how to get those patients engaged.
0: So it sounds like, you know, maybe a partnership with an Amazon or a Google that has a tremendous level of data on the consumer and what drives different behaviors might make sense for an organization like yours
1: yeah absolutely i think that 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 does make a lot of sense Um, and looking and you know those guys do have great understanding of consumer behavior Uh, so what if you were to add in a layer of medical information or clinical diet clinical data on top of that what could you what could you understand or predict or influence i think is
0: uh, what you want to do at the end of the day How do you get that person to not walk into the McDonald's? (laughs) Great. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that you think would be critical for people to hear about the company or where you think the space is going?
1: Uh, Look, these are exciting times, and it is the AI and healthcare space is evolving so quickly. Um, I do get a little concerned when I see you know these small startups uh, with no real. business models uh because we do need businesses that have sustained that that are able to sustain themselves um and you know have models that allow them to you know if company's a company uh that generate revenue and that will last um i've been in the health 2.0 and health tech space for a long time now and uh, i just see too many companies start and fail um So, you know, spending time on a a really good business model, figuring out how to take incremental steps towards solving problems instead of like trying to just leapfrog. Now, if you're, you know, if you've if you've just sold your startup and and you've got money to burn, then that's great. Go solve the biggest problems. But um, not everybody has that opportunity. So uh, it's really about you know, we would all love for the healthcare system to free all its data and for everything to flow and work perfectly together, but it doesn't work that way. And I think, you know, the more companies that are taking bite-sized chunks out of it uh, towards moving us all towards that solution and then co- cooperating and collaborating between them, I think that that's sort of the, the way that the thing the industry will go, at least succeed.
0: Yeah, I think of it like when I, when I um, you know, one person makes a scale, the other one makes the blood pressure cuff, but they have APIs that allow so one app to sort of aggregate that data into one place. And so there seems to be a free flow of data. If you're on the keep yourself healthy side, yeah. it's once you cross over into the, well, you're sort of sick or in the healthcare system that everything gets locked down.
1: Uh, lockdown and also, unfortunately, the people who are sick and unhealthy are not the ones who are big consumers of, of the wearables and the scales and all of this. And that, that's really the challenge. When, when we get good at passive data collection, I think we'll, we'll have a kind of a breakthrough on, uh, on, on data on the, on, the, on the sick population,
0: not just the well population. Well, on that note i want to thank you very much for joining today um hope everybody listening enjoyed it and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation in the future yeah great thanks for the opportunity and that's it for this episode join me for the next episode where i speak to Dekel geldman who is the founding ceo of fdna on how they use a combination of computer vision deep learning and artificial intelligence to improve and accelerate diagnostics and therapeutics impacting the lives of children with rare diseases. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.